And also by kind of being the helicopter CEO, I was actually stifling the freedom of the very smart people that we hired. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another edition of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm going to be joined by a really fun conversation as I sit down with one of the guys who's out there changing the world of retail. Joining me today is the CEO and founder of Boxed, Che Wong. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. You know, we've known each other for many years now, so, so I'm really going to enjoy uh, the next few kind of uh, minutes or so that we're chatting. For sure. Thank you for taking the time. So I want to dive in right starting with Boxed. So you started the company at the age of 31 in the garage after selling your first startup, which was in the mobile gaming space. How did your viewpoint change in your second time around as an entrepreneur? Oh, that's actually a great question. I, I feel like as strange as it sounds, I learned probably more of what not to do the second time around than what to do. Meaning that in the ultimate blessing, I feel like we had a very successful result in our first startup. Even though we didn't do a lot of things right, it was just the same four folks in someone's mom's attic figuring it out. And so a lot of ways, we had a free education in that first startup on what not to do in our second one. And I think that's the reason we've been able to scale as fast and as as large as we have been able to these past few years. A direct example of that would be kind of delegation of roles as we've evolved. And so breaking out of not just a a culture of a company that's just run by the co-founders, to graduating to a culture where the co-founders are part of the executive team, but there are no kind of subcultures of or sub-executive committee where, where the co-founders make all the important decisions. That basically was the case in our first company. Now it's not the case in this company because we would never be able to scale the management team if we, if we remain that way. That makes total sense. So, you know, talking about scaling a company, one of the premises behind Boxed is that this value equation has changed and that consumers have a time and patience problem. What do you mean when you talk about a time and patience problem with consumers today? So, you know, I would say even the time and patience problem, like my view on that has evolved a bit. I think five and a half years ago when we're just sitting in a garage, that was almost purely just how fast you can get a package to the end consumer's house or business. And back then, two days was the golden standard. Now that has kind of evolved quite a bit. So now, you know, next day and same day being the soon to be standard. But over those last few years, I've also thought that time and patience problem has evolved a bit. So time and patience now, in my mind, encompasses what I need to do to check out. So even in the experience, like, do I have to go to separate apps? Do I have to check out with this app if I want to buy this and that app if I want to buy, if I want one hour shipping? And also, how do I discover the items that I really want without searching 12 times and getting 12 packages? So that has certainly kind of factored into time and patience as well. But I think the most important evolution is time and patience sometimes is just a factor of predictability. So meaning that it's wonderful that something's going to be going to arrive in the next few hours during an allotted two-hour window, but I really need to predict uh, down to, say, a 10- or 20-minute window of when you're actually going to show up. So we have an express business in five different cities throughout the country, and what we found is that it's not necessary that people need kind of what we're selling, the the types of items that we're selling in the next hour. What they want is to pick that slot and for you to to tell them that you're going to be on time and for them to have the predictability of, okay, when during this slot 
will you arrive so that I can take a shower or I can take the kids out and not miss the delivery. So that's certainly evolved in my mind. That makes total sense. And, you know, with Box, you've been able to build from the ground up, having that mindset of where the world was changing, how it's evolving. But if you look at the retail world, particularly incumbents, they need to shift to respond to this value equation change. What do you think that Fortune 500 company and that traditional retailer, how can they evolve and change into this new world? I think, you know, outside of all the different things they're already doing, I feel very lucky that we get a point of view from the outside in terms of kind of all these different CPG companies that we kind of deal with. And what I've found is that the folks that are evolving the fastest and evolving the most effectively are the ones that truly are empowered. And so you'll have these huge organizations that, you know, on an earnings call, they say nothing except innovation. We have to move faster. We got to do this. The world is changing. And then their innovation guy and the innovation team or the e-commerce team is buried like eight levels below the CEO. You know, and they have a separate office that no one ever visits and they don't run their own P&L. That is where the rubber hits the road. And if you kind of back them into that corner, they're never going to produce the results in, in a huge Fortune 500 company. The big ones that I've seen report actually directly into the CEO, report directly into the CFO. They have the P&L. They are an important part of the strategy going forward, not just on paper, but also in practice. And I think that would be the biggest learning that I could share. That makes total sense. So let's dive in a little bit more on that, uh, you know, folks that have that innovation role. So you and I met when Box was just getting started at an event I host in Cincinnati for brands and startups called Brand Fusion. Why do you think it's so important for Fortune 500 companies to have a strategy around startup engagement at the very earliest stages of uh, startup world? So that event was our big introduction to the world of big CPGs. Before that, uh, we were 100% buying from distributors. Uh, and, you know, like, uh, I remember getting the email and just jumping on it. And at that event, you know, I, we, we made our first contact with P&G and a bunch of other brands that we do so much business with today. But I point back to that, that event was that was our first break into the big world of, of CPGs and having a one-to-one contact uh, with them. So, so thank you, Dave. It's part of the reason why, you know, hopefully five and a half years, I'm repaying the favor by being on your show. But it was a big break for us. But going to kind of back to the original question of like why these big companies should engage with startups, I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is where the innovation is coming from. You know, the reality is because companies in the Fortune 500 are so big, have so many processes, it's not that they're not smart enough to get things done. It's just that there's a lot of kind of inertia that's needed in these companies to get things started. And oftentimes having companies outside of that kind of That gravitational pool is the fastest way to get things done, and that's what these startups provide. Now, when I say engage, I don't think, not necessarily to kind of use them, you know, be customers of them or to invest in them or to buy them. I mean, simply to have high-level folks meet with them and understand where the world is going and who really wants to kind of eat their share. Sometimes it's it's equally as, as important as paying attention to the big competitors in this space because... What we found in technology is that it doesn't happen often, but the way that these companies scale these days, they come out of nowhere. And by the time they come out of your blind side and into your view, it's usually already too late to do something about it. So I think that's why they should engage. 
At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible, streamlining operations and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the people behind Box. So you've given a lot of talks where you cover the importance of culture and the impact that people have on that. And with that in mind, you're a lot more hands-on in hiring than probably a lot of CEOs are. And I think even today, you still interview every candidate as a final step in the process. So with that in mind, why why are you looking for people that talk about we instead of I? I still technically interview them. It's just about 15 minutes these days. And it's usually... No, it, it, it is usually only the last candidate. Like we're about to give them their offer. And I just want to make sure that they're normal people because, you know, we spend so much time together with our coworkers that I just don't want to be surrounded by jerks, you know, it, because the reality is, you know, I spend more waking hours in the office and with coworkers than I do, unfortunately, with my family on most weekdays. And so I just want to like, I just want to know that I could sit next to this person and kind of stand them in a normal conversation for 15 minutes. So it's a relatively easy uh, interview, but that's more of what I'm, uh, what I'm checking. But, you know, when it comes to people and we versus I, I think I fundamentally believe that even the lowest, quote unquote, lowest level of employee, like the folks on the most junior rung of the totem pole, as a group, those folks are more important than any single executive in the company, including me. And the reason why I've come to that conclusion is I've done this very morbid exercise of just thinking in my mind, if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, the company, you know what? They'll, they'll go on. They'll try to find a new CEO. They'll, they, they might elevate someone and they'll keep going on. But the reality is on the opposite side, if every single FC employee or corporate employee walked out in unison tomorrow, company's done. Like that's the first day the company's over. And so folks who believe in that power of uh, the collective spirit, I think are, are, are really important versus the folks that just say, you know, I did this, I did that. And if I wasn't here, this wouldn't get done because that could be pretty toxic over time. Yeah, that makes sense. So I, and I think you kind of answered the next question. And so I'd love you dive in more on it. You've spent oh. a lot of time when you talk about we you actually live it up in how you treat the employees. So you've done some pretty remarkable things of unlimited maternity and paternity leave, helping pay for employee weddings, assistance in paying for children's college tuition. With all this debate around wages and working conditions and retail and Amazon warehouses and everything else, you're taking an approach that's pretty atypical in the retail world. So what led you to think about that? There's a personal kind of aspect of it and a, and a business aspect of it. So the personal aspect of it is just, I grew up in a working class family where that has pervaded kind of every single thing about me. 
and in how I view the world. And now that we employ a lot of folks who also are in working class families making, say, 12 to $15 an hour, I want to be able to treat those folks sometimes with the respect that kind of my parents and, and my mom was not treated with. And so that's the personal uh, aspect of it. I think the business aspect of it also pencils out more than most folks actually think that it does. The crazy thing that, that we're seeing today is that we're in a full-on talent war when it comes to FC employees, all the way to marketers, all the way to engineers. So if you just take the corporate side of things, a headhunter for a mid-level engineer costs anywhere from thirty dollars to $50,000 these days. A director and VP level hire is about $75,000 for recruiters. And a C-level hire, it's between $100,000 to $150,000. And so if you just think about like being able to inspire folks and, and kind of decrease retention or increase retention in those ranks and decrease voluntary exits, if you're able to even change the percentage a little bit and not use five or six recruiters this year, the amount of money that you save is just simply staggering, not even kind of factoring in the lost productivity of needing to refresh that role and getting someone trained into that role. And so that's the way I think from a business perspective, we've been able to make things pencil out. The more esoteric point of view is that at the end of the day, the consumer has just an abundance of choice when it comes to, to buying Oreo cookies and toilet paper. And if everyone is sharp on pricing and if everyone is eventually going to get to one day or two day or same day shipping, the only thing left for you to kind of for us to be able to direct kind of where you want to spend your money is the brand. And if our brand stands for some good in the world, I feel like we'll, we'll have a good amount of customers, if all things are equal, that want to shop with us. And so I think those three ways hopefully give folks listening an insight into why we do what we do. So when you think about that culture, you've got an interesting balancing that you have to do then of, on one hand, you're doing these amazing perks for your employees that are things they would never expect. But on the flip side, as you mentioned, you're working in a culture or an industry that is tight margins and lots of choice. So you've been very thrifty since day one in terms of conservative spending, flying in the middle seat and coach when you're going somewhere. So how do you get your employees to think about why you're doing one heavy spending on one side, but very conservative spending on the other side? That's actually a really good question that, that is rarely asked from the outside, but we are constantly being asked from the inside. And my very simple answer is this. We want to spend money where it counts. And so when you come into our office, you won't see the ping pong table. You won't see a beer tap. You won't see a lot of, you won't see sleep or nap pods. A lot of those kind of fringe benefits that a lot of other startups provide, you won't see that here at Box. But what you will see will be that the folks who aren't able to pay something as unfortunate as their parents' medical bills, or, uh, or if they're stricken with a long-term illness that, you know, over time, disability doesn't get the bills paid for, those are the things that we pay for and that we activate versus giving everyone unlimited kombucha and, and kind of uh, smoothies in the morning. And for us, I'm not here proselytizing about like us being the right way and the way that everyone should follow, but it's one that I firmly believe in and the one that if you join Box, you'll learn that this is how we do it. You don't have to agree with it. It is kind of a strange quirk. I fully admit and own that. But I think it's one that's become core to our culture. So speaking of uh, quirks, you know, last year in 2018, you gave uh, 
a TED talk that was around confessions of being a recovering micromanager. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, how's your, um, yeah, how's your management style evolved over your career and what inspired that TED talk? Oh, man. Uh, You know, it's just so hard, like, because, you know, a lot of what, like, so I've got two kids, but really I've got three kids, right? It's my son, my daughter, and Bob. And it's really hard to kind of let go sometimes, you know, when at the outset you're packing every box and, you know, you're writing every note and you're raising every last dollar and you're hiring every last person. You have this vision of what it should be. But over time, you know, I forgot that, like, actually need to let go in order for the vision to, to actually happen. You know, there's not enough hours in a day for me to do uh, everything. And also by kind of being the helicopter CEO, um, I was actually stifling the freedom of the very smart people that we hired. And the more I thought about it, the more I understand why that was the case, but it was also very difficult to let go. So overall, you know, the crazy thing about life is that if you're really good at what you do, you get hired to, to do something. And if you're really good at it, you get more work and then you get more work. And at one point in time, you actually get rewarded with not doing work, but to be able to, you get rewarded with the job to manage people. And managing people who do the work is a completely different skill set than actually doing the work. And I realized I wasn't making that transition fast or well enough. And so it was my confession to, to the whole world that, uh, that I was not good at my job at that, at that point in time. I love it. That's awesome. The final question I want to dive into is your career is really this perfect example of what I call continuous beta. You've had a journey that's gone from teaching English in rural Japan to attending law school to starting a mobile game studio and you know now found, founding your third child, as you called it, in Boxed. <laughs> yep. So, you know, how do you think this variety of experiences has contributed to your success that led you to where you are today? Oh, man. Contributing to my success, my immediate reaction is that it, it, it's humbled me because every time you, you basically start over, right? Like, you, like when I went from being an attorney to gaming, I knew nothing. Well, I was an avid gamer, but I knew nothing about gaming production. And so you're suddenly back on the first day of school learning the one-on-one classes or taking the one-on-one classes. And then, you know, over time, I, I felt like I became really knowledgeable about game production. And then to go into retail and CPG, man, like, Dave, you can admit it, I was clueless when I first met you sitting in Brand Fusion that, that year. But I, I kind of like those humbling experiences, like in that, in that, like, you're back in the beginning, you know no one in the industry, and you're here to just figure it out. And it's, and it's kind of such a challenge uh, to be that sponge, to have to learn everything from scratch. I don't know, it's not only a challenge, but a thrill for me. I've never heard of that term, continuous beta, but I really like it. And so, so I guess I, I definitely subscribe to that theory. The other kind of sobering thing that stuck with me, and I apologize to everyone listening to this because you cannot unhear this. And so if you don't want to unhear this weird fact about life and, and where you are right now, I turn off the podcast right now because I'm telling you, you will not be able to unhear this. I certainly was not after I heard this, this kind of saying. But someone recently, uh, or someone actually not so recently anymore, kind of reinforced my belief in continuous beta uh, throughout my career by saying that you are the youngest you'll ever be today. So if you think about it from that aspect, I don't think kind of jumping and trying to figure things out and having the excitement of kind of new 
new kind of journeys will be something you regret when all is said and done. The only caveat is you still have to pay the bills and you still have to support the family. So if you could find a way to do both, then you know, at least from my perspective, it's a pretty fun way to lead life. Oh, that's perfect. I actually think that's a, a great way to kind of conclude the conversation. And I don't think that's one anybody should forget. You know, the yeah. moment now to it's jump hard in. to, man. It's forever in my mind. You know, every time I look at the clock, I'm like, man, the minutes are ticking by. But, uh, but I've, I've certainly had fun, David. It, it was great to, to kind of catch up with you again. For sure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.